and welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast, a show featuring conversations with leading practitioners of videographic criticism. I'm your host, Will DeGravio, and on today's show, I sit down with Ian Garwood, a scholar at the University of Glasgow and one of the forum's leading practitioners. Ian and I discuss his innovative, award-winning project, Indie Vinyl, and Jesse McGough's video essay, My Mulholland, which was published as part of the video essay series, Once Upon a Screen. Before we get to my conversation with Ian, I just want to thank the listeners out there uh, for your continued loyalty and support of the podcast. Uh, I know it's been uh, many weeks since the last episode. Um, I recently, as some of you may know, uh, moved to New York City, where I am now living. Um, It has been wonderful and fun and really the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. So I'm just now getting getting fully settled here and... uh, Now that I get more comfortable, I'll hopefully be bringing you more podcast episodes in the future. Um, And if you are in the New York City area um, and know of any exciting things going on or would like to meet up for a drink at some point or anything, uh, please do let me know. I would love to join the any video essay community or film community here um, in New York City. Um, As always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Video Essay. You can find more information about the show and its new sister podcast on your screen at thevideoessay.com. You can also find us on Facebook. And more recently, please consider subscribing to the Video Essay Podcast on YouTube. Um, All of the past episodes and other show-related content are now on YouTube, um, and I have some plans uh, for the YouTube channel going forward. So please uh, consider giving me a subscribe there. Um, And you can also support the show um, on Patreon, patreon.com slash the video essay. And now without further ado, here's my conversation with the great Ian Garwood. I am now incredibly pleased to be joined by someone who really needs no introduction. If you have ever been on Video Essay Twitter, as I believe Kevin Bealey recently referred to it, or have been in any Facebook group on videographic criticism, or just been in audiovisual see, you will have seen the work of one Ian Garwood, who is a senior lecturer in film and television studies at the University of Glasgow. Uh, Ian, you and I have been planning to sit down here for months and months, and we are finally doing it. Welcome uh, to the Video Essay Podcast. It's so good to have you here. Well, th- thanks very much, Will. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, it's a real honour, actually, to be invited to talk, to talk to you. And yeah, as you say, it has been a while um, since we tried to set this up. So really glad to be here. Um, and you know, I'm really grateful for all the things you've been doing as well um, on the podcast, but all the other work you do associated with it. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of that. Well, thank you. And and thank you also for your support of the podcast and always retweeting and sharing and participating in the in the various projects that that are going on. I, I think that's what makes the the podcast worth doing for people like me is, you know, getting to watch all of the great stuff that listeners make and and your work has has taught me so much. So I, I I'm really excited to be sitting down here to talk about it. And my first question for you is what is your origin story? I, I I find for some reason I had just assumed that you had gone to the video camp at Middlebury College, but I don't think that's true. And so I have no clue how you were first introduced to, to videographic criticism, what inspired you to begin creating video essays. Walk us through how you started doing this. <laughs> actually, you've, you've unwittingly um, touched a bit of a nerve there, actually, because uh, that's one of my biggest regrets not to have been to the Middlebury College uh, video camp. I mean, it just sounds like this 
idyllic experience and everyone that's been there um, that I've talked to describes it like that and it just never was kind of a possibility really in terms of um i just i had kind of two young kids and i couldn't get away for that amount of time in, in the summer um even if i'd been successful in going to it so so that's one of my regrets so but in terms of where it started for me i think maybe my story is is fairly familiar in terms of um the experience of certainly of kind of academics who are kind of established film studies um, academics um, and have been for a while like like me in the sense that I was really introduced to the video essay form um, through the sort of the viral videos um, the, um, of like Every Frame of Painting um, and Kevin B. Lee, you know, around that sort of 2010 time because I was interested in them myself and I picked up on them myself, but also because my students um, were increasingly watching these things and talking about them. Um, so there, there was that kind of um, influence, which I know is, is familiar for a lot of us. And then the other influence was actually um, Catherine Grant uh, really and all the work she did to promote the form in academia um, and I was really inspired by that uh, and that's really what um, prompted me to think I can teach um, video essays in, in, in my courses and so I suppose if there's a kind of slight spin on the origin story is that it's really the teaching context that, that's been influential to me. So the first video essay I made was explicitly made as a teaching tool. Um, it was um, a video essay on, on Hoagie Carmichael, who was a, a, um, a real life musician who played a sort of barroom pianist figure in lots of classic Hollywood melodramas in the 40s and 50s. And I made that video to learn how to make them and also to produce a model for students um, on the course that I was going to teach the next year, a video essay course. So really... That was my ambition at the time, was to think about how I could use video essays in teaching rather than really thinking of it as a kind of um, means of research. I suppose that came out of my experience. Um, so I've been working at University of Glasgow for 20 years now. Um, and the course that we offer, uh, the undergraduate program anyway, is primarily theoretical and critical, but we do offer a few production courses as well. Um, and one thing that we've always tried to do on the courses is to try and make sure there's a critical element to the production courses as well. And for some reason, I don't really know why, I, I was often the person, the kind of the academic link to the practical courses. And and I puzzled for a number of years over how to kind of get that critical element into the practical courses. Um, not particularly successfully, I don't think, really. Um, so actually, the idea of making video essays um, in, in the context of our degree program seemed like the perfect way of mixing uh, sort of theory and, and practice together. It just seemed the ideal form. So the, they were the motivations, really, that led me to trying to make them myself. And then the reason I've kind of kept making them and it's become more of a research activity as well, I suppose, again, I really have to thank Catherine Grant a lot for the support she gave me. Her, her, her reaction to the first video I made um, was, you know, really, really um, helpful to me. Um, and she encouraged me to, to reflect on it in, in one of the early editions of In Transition. Um, and so it's then it's kind of gone on from there, really. 
I love that origin story. Thank you for sharing it, because I think when I watch your work, obviously there is the rigorous research, the critical lens through it. But so much of your work, as I said, teaches me and and your audience so many things. And, And one feels that teaching origin in your work. But when was it that you I mean, you talked about the you know, the encouragement of Catherine Grant, which, you know, I count myself as among the people who have been encouraged by Katie and, and you know, would not be doing a lot of things that I'm doing without her. When do you remember when it was that you realized, oh, this is what I want to use as a form of research? Um, and, and, and when did that when did that come? Well, it, it was partly due to the encouragement that I had after doing the Hoagie Carmichael uh, video and because I was asked to reflect uh, on the video in In Transition, which is obviously an academic journal, which is publishing research, um, it, it, it kind of forced me or in, uh, encouraged me to, to think of what I'd done as as research. Uh, so I suppose that was definitely part of it. And then I then the next time I made a video was was the the um, place of voiceover in audiovisual film and TV criticism. Um, catchiest title ever um uh, and so then that that the genesis of that was um firstly as part of a, a presentation at the screen conference so screen is kind of a big sort of film and tv studies conference as, as people in academia will, will know um and it's it's actually run out of university of glasgow so but again i must say it was it was catherine grant that invited me um, onto the panel um to, to to do that and so i made basically the first half of the that 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 video for the um the screen conference so clearly um that's that's a conference where you're presenting your research um and and so that i think it just developed really from from the kind of the reception of the hoagie carmichael video made me think okay this is going to be really useful for teaching and it and it certainly has sort of given me a new lease of life in terms of the teaching that i've been doing over the last um six or seven years i guess um but then i thought actually that i can also kind of publish um videos as as part of my research Search portfolio and it's just gradually sort of gathered ahead of steam since then uh, but 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 actually quite gradually so it's only really in the last year or so that I've really started being a lot more productive in the, in in terms of the amount of um, videos I may make I suppose I had until recently had an idea that really what I'm going to be doing is is using my video essays in teaching and then maybe occasionally kind of producing my own videos you know which which might end up being kind of part of my research portfolio but it wasn't the focus um, in the early years certainly. You mentioned the place of voiceover in academic audiovisual film and television criticism which is the video essay that I was going to ask you about next. So this video I've seen Jason Mattel screen for people many times. So I first watched watched it at Middlebury College and had seen it multiple times really before before I, you know, decided that I wanted to kind of join the, the video essay world and really knew who who you were. And I and I would say if I was to put together like a list of, you know, the most influential video essays or video essays that I think, you know, everyone should watch right when they're being introduced to the forum, this video would be on the list. And I know for a fact, we talked about Video Camp. That's one of the video essays that is screened at Video Camp for people who are getting first introduced to the form. My first question would be, walk us through the creation of that video. You know, how did you get the idea? But could you also 
discuss, and the reason I ask this is because it's one of many examples of works that you've made that analyze and reflect on the practice of videographic criticism itself. And what is it that draws you to reflect on the form in this way? Yeah, um, I think actually you got the title completely right. I think I got my own title wrong. Um, I missed out the word academic when I when I said it, I think. So um, that particular video, the voiceover video, one of the impetus for it was to just do a kind of self-critique. So, so part of the reason that I'm interested in thinking through what the form can do is because I'm interested in trying to do it better myself I suppose so selfishly that is one of the reasons um, I'm trying to work these ideas through but of course I I could do that and then not show it to anyone if it was really just just for kind of self-improvement so I do then make the decision to often put um, these, these videos online as well. So I suppose one thing is, again, going back to the sort of the idea of, of teaching being really important, um, that that I um, feel that often I'm, I make these videos with teaching in mind and part and, and a lot of the teaching I do around audiovisual criticism is around the form of audiovisual criticism so so it makes sense then that the videos are about that that topic and they're very sort of metacritical in that way the other um, kind of influence I suppose is that I suppose I'm quite self-conscious about the different forms that I use in my video work And, and maybe that's something we'll come on to talk about more later partly because as I said, until recently, I, I, I guess I had an impression of myself as someone who wouldn't make that many video essays. So because I had that impression of myself, I thought, well, each time I make one, I better make it in a different style. And and so that's that's kind of definitely was a conscious decision um, until recently, at least, that I would try and make the most of my experience making the video essays by not trying to do the same thing um, um, each time. So because I'm self-conscious about the form and the way I use it, I think it probably then makes sense that I'm kind of quite critically reflective um, about what the form can do. And so that some of my videos end up being metacritical um, um, because of that. That makes a lot of sense. And I hope everyone listening to this conversation right now, hears what Ian is saying. Here we have a prolific video essayist, one of the best, talking about how he did not think he would be that way. Um, and I think, you know, there's some, there's definitely a lesson in there and some words of encouragement. Just to follow up on that, I mean, one, one of the drivers behind the voiceover video definitely was for me to reflect back on the voiceover I delivered for the Hokie Carmichael video, which kind of... I think everyone, no one, I don't think, likes the sound of their voice. Um, but I, I certainly felt there was room for improvement in terms of the way I kind of delivered the voice voiceover and the way I scripted things uh, as well. So yeah, really, that 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 video, there was a lot of lot of the um, impetus for it was being self-critical and trying to work out how to do it better in the future or to find other ways of um, doing this kind of research in this format potentially without using voiceover so it was a way of kind of trying to work out what the position and value of voiceover was in the field looking at lots of different examples um, but but partly so I could think about what I would do with kind of voiceover in the future um, and actually what I decided to do with voiceover um, was not to use it very much at all in, in future work so it was almost as if I'd stymied myself in some way by by kind of making this 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 very self-conscious um, video uh, 
about voiceover and and you know thinking quite carefully about the value of using it the limits of using it um i kind of taught myself out of using it myself <laughs> until quite recently one of the things you talk about in that video is just the dominance of male voices in in uh audiovisual criticism and, and just like in every other aspect of of society you know video essays are are no different but one of the things that i think about when i think about your video and in pointing that out is when you and others make these types of video essays, it's also not only is it being, uh, you know, self-reflective, not only is it giving other audiovisual essayists and consumers of audiovisual essayists things to think about as far as the form, but it's also, I think, making the case for the form itself, and particularly towards those who might want to delegitimize it or not view it as scholarly, as was the subject of the recent issue of The Cinephiles and my conversation with Tracy Cox Stanton and Alison DeFranc. And it seems to me that your voice also shows the importance of actually thinking through all the different of components of an audiovisual essay. Each element is worthy of critique and analyzing, and there's an art to this. And there's more than just some, you know, there's a lot that goes into someone reading a script or annotating a video, right? And I think in a way you are, you're recognizing that for being important. And in that, I I feel your expertise as a scholar of music and of sound, um, because I think that there are people who would say, oh, well, you know, writing is harder. Writing is better. Writing is what we should focus on. But you're actually saying, no, there's a lot behind the voice and the voiceover that we need to unpack and look at. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, I, I find it quite funny that my kind of greatest hit in a way is, is a 20 minute video about such a niche topic. Um, in a way, but that that certainly was one of the intentions was to um, yeah to value the form and and to to explore the possibilities of the form. And I suppose one thing that I feel about my sort of metacritical videos is that I don't think they're very theoretical actually, and I, I'm not I'm not a very theoretical person actually. I I like to think of them as quite practical forms of self reflection. So really, um, I'm looking to see how things have been done and and then reflecting from 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 that position really so then in in that 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 voiceover video i do then kind of suggest some ways that um the use of voiceover could be developed um and um you know offer some some hopes for the future i suppose but it's very much based on kind of a practical reflection on what's actually being done um at, at the moment one of the things that SCMS does that I, I really enjoy and that I've recently started to go back is they do these interviews with pioneers in, in, in film studies and in TV studies. And they're on Vimeo. I, I've, I forget exactly what they're called. They have a, a name to them. And it's really interesting to kind of go back and watch the development of film studies. But one of the things that I really love about video essays and videographic criticism in this community is that there are so many works like yours that are tracking this development in real time and reflecting on it. And that's not to say that film studies did not have that in written forms. Of course it did. Um, but it, it, it's fun to feel like, you know, we are living through so many of these debates right now and that they're happening in such a, a meta way and that we have the internet and that we can do things online. And in that vein, you, you recently made a series of 
video lectures that Kevin B. Lee called, and I'll, I'm going to quote Kevin here, truly inspired examples of lectures as video essays or vice versa that I've seen this year. I watched them with joy and awe. Now, I will link to all these video essays, and, and you generously agreed to reflect on them in notes on videographic criticism a few weeks or, or months ago. T- time runs. I don't, I don't know what time is anymore. I hadn't previously thought of your lectures as video essays per se um, in the way that Kevin describes. And I'm wondering, do you do you think that they are video essays? And was that your intention when you were making them, or were they for you just a an exercise in, as you said, teaching and and video lectures? Well, first of all, I was just so pleased to to see Kevin um, saying that. It was like I was really very kind of chuffed to use a, an academic word. Um, I suppose the, the the primary purpose were, were was as elements of my teaching and so just just to give a bit of context to them I suppose um, they they were made I was doing the last three weeks of a co-taught course um, a postgraduate course called advanced topics in film studies and uh, the first two blocks of teaching had been done by colleagues um, on quite disparate topics so so um, one colleague had done a, a block on notions of film history another colleague had done a block on um, ideas of cosmopolitanism and transnationalism and, and national cinemas my brief really was to do a block on audiovisual film criticism um, but to try and tie it into the other two two blocks so you know it, it was kind of um, it, it, it was an in interesting intellectual and exercise and teaching exercise to try and find links um, between the, my block and, and the other two two blocks. So I made them. I thought it would be a good idea to make them as the topic was audiovisual film criticism. Why not make these to go alongside the teaching? Um, and I deliberately made each of them in a different style because it was an option for the students to make video essays on the course. So I wanted to kind of showcase some of the different styles they could potentially use. So all of that was kind of sort of the teaching purpose of them. So I I don't know if I would call them video essays. I I know that I wouldn't call them lectures, even though um, they do have that teaching context because the the way I actually released them was rather than kind of releasing them um, a good time before that week's topic, I actually released them within the week um, in which I was teaching that topic. So the idea of them really was, it was almost as if I was like like the student sort of just trying to get to grips with the material as you're going along. And then I did a videographic response to, to that material. So they weren't kind of lectures in the sense that they were setting up the ideas that the kind of students had to know in order to kind of get through the reading and the viewing for, for that week. So they're more kind of working in the flow, which I know is a, a phrase that, that, that you like, um, I borrowed from, from Catherine Grant. Um, that was a kind of the, the idea behind them. So, so they're not, they're not lectures in a traditional sense. I, I don't think whether or not I would call them video essays. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's such a kind of, um, a, a big tent term, obviously the, the video essay, uh, it's certainly if you want to, you can call it, um, a, a video essay if, if you like so but I think they are it's quite interesting to think about what they are because as I say I don't I don't think they're just video lectures I'm not sure they're not they're not video essays in the sense that they're kind of um, pursuing a particular 
research topic and and kind of coming to a kind of particularly formed argument um, about um, something that, that yeah so so that that was the um, impetus um, behind those so there was a strong teaching impetus but then I decided to put them online and as soon as they go online outside of the classroom context then I think they do you know turn into something else inevitably actually and going back to what you said about the kind of the the really kind of cool thing about um, audiovisual criticism is that you can release things um you know reflections on the form that kind of keep keep track of how the form is growing you can just release them and keep track of things in real time um you know that was definitely um something that i, I hope these these videos do um as, as well um and it really is one of the kind of um advantages to me of of audiovisual criticism is the ability just to publish things when i want to rather than sort of getting kind of caught up in the slow kind of wheels of academic publishing so so i decided to put them online and as soon as we do that they, they they're not just teaching tools anymore they're out there in the world you know for other people to see and relate to and just so the final point in terms of keeping track of, of developments all of the videos were really um inspired by the the cine files um special edition on the scholarly video essay so it, i was really kind of very happy that that came out just before Christmas, um, or whenever it came out, I've lost track of time now. Uh, so I was, yeah, I think it was just just after Christmas, wasn't it? It came out, and um, it was really great. It came out that time, and I really did want to make sure I was kind of using the thinking in in that special issue in my my teaching. Uh, so I was really happy that I could kind of bring that into the videos. Well, we're going to get back to the cinephiles and we're going to get back to working in the flow in a second. I, I completely agree. And, and this I was going to say the same thing that, you know, and, and you said it better than I, I would have said it, that once these videos leave the classroom, they become something else. And I think and I think it's that moment when they leave that you could make the argument that they become video essays or, or videographic criticism. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it kind of ties back to this thing that I actually may have said when I spoke to your class for the first time, but it's something I've said a couple times that I, maybe I've stolen from someone else too, is that you can make the argument that a, uh, or, you know, a video essay, and this is a little tongue in cheek, but a video essay isn't a video essay until it's uploaded online somewhere publicly. Um, you know, that, you know, and, you know, obviously there are caveats, there are DVD extras and ones that screen at film festivals. And of course those count. So, you know, it's not, I'm not making a hard statement. It's, but I think there's something, there's some truth there um, that I think is worth unpacking and perhaps uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to chew on that a little bit more. But if anyone has any thoughts, let me know. But the the, the core point, I guess, of your videos or, or one of them is or the thing people should know about them is that it reappropriates a lot of footage and video of other videographic critics. I know I'm in there in one of the videos in my conversation with John Gibbs. And you're releasing these sparked an interesting conversation about sort of the the ethics of appropriating this video and you reached out to me and you reached out to I think pretty much everyone um, to just seek permission to um, appropriate us in this way I as speaking just for myself I you did not need to ask my permission I appreciate it and I would have been fine with it either way because I think once the podcast goes out there it's it's um, kind of fair game. But you had an, a great line that has been rattling around my head in the reflection you wrote, which is that there's a difference between remixing Cary Grant and remixing Catherine Grant. And I think there's a lot of truth there, but I'm wondering if you could just explain to the listeners what that difference is for you. There's a couple of differences. Um, I think one is it just 
is a different experience to be co-opting footage of people that you either know, uh, as in the case of Catherine Grant, or, or, or that you're aware of because you're all part of the same academic community or, or kind of video essay making community, than messing around with footage from Cary Grant, you know, Hollywood star, um, who who obviously is is, is long long gone, um, and has made made um, his films in the knowledge that they're there, you know, for the public to, to consume. I think there is sort of just in, in my mind, there's something kind of seemingly different about appropriating footage of kind of non-professional kind of um, um, act actors um for my own work with the added element of the sort of like maybe personally knowing them or being aware aware of them um but actually i think one of the point i was making in 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 the um the reflection that you asked me to write was in the end i i think it is ethical um to make use of those those um images and those those voices um and the comparison would be I, I wouldn't think twice about quoting um the same people if they'd kind of written an article about videographic criticism you know and I was writing an article um about it you wouldn't kind of seek permission every time you quoted someone in a written article so really it shouldn't be anything different when you're kind of using bodies and voices um in 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 the act of quotation uh but it does feel different to me um because of the embodied nature of it and so i think obviously the embodied nature of audiovisual film criticism is one of its most distinctive features and one of the kind of features that are you know is something that we're all trying to exploit it's one of the real big attractions of, of, of this form um, but it is also it does also mean it's a kind of a different different experience working with bodies and voices rather than working with words in the in the on the page does seem to be a qualitatively different experience um yeah i'm not sure it's, it's something um considering i wrote that reflection for you i should have thought through more <laughs> really but uh that, that's my thoughts at the moment anyway well, no, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I and I agree with you. And I think, in a way, you could tie this to the power of the form that we're working with, in that it is a different experience to see and hear someone than it is to read a quote. Like it just is different, and you know, pretending otherwise would be dishonest. And also, you know, the you know, obviously, you would never do this, but the the the, the ways that you could harm or slander or hurt Cary Grant. And I don't I don't think you could really do that. I mean you you probably could, but it would be much harder to do that than to really misrepresent a scholar who you are remixing or to present them in a way that's unfavorable or to make them feel uncomfortable or you know whatever go down the list and it's it's very different and the image and sound is more powerful in this context than words a lot of the time uh and so and so pretending that's not there would be dishonest to yourself to everyone else and to the form that we're working with yeah that's a really good way of putting it and uh, and i think uh, yeah, I make life easy for myself or at the moment so far because 
the only ways I've ever used um, the voices of other kind of um, people making video essays is hopefully in a positive way. Um, Never in a way which is intended to kind of be destructive or or even actually to contradict um, the kind of the the work um, or the views that, that that are being proposed by other other people. That there has also to be a be room, obviously, for kind of um, disagreement um, uh, as well. So I think that would be a really kind of interesting test case. What what would happen, you know, if if there was a kind of a, a, a position um, that I, I really wanted to take issue with? I think maybe I would feel more comfortable about doing that in a written article than I than I would in terms of you actually using their kind of faces and voices of the people that I'm arguing against in 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 a video um but I haven't actually had to deal with that dilemma um as yet yeah no it's 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 interesting question I never thought of it but it definitely feels it definitely just feels more confrontational you know it feels like a yeah I don't know like an ex like it'd be turned into some type of expose or you could imagine how it would then start to feel like I don't know something made by like a tabloid or <laughs> I don't know it's it's interesting it would depend on the context of course but I I know what you mean and I suppose there as well the difference between dealing with thoughts that people are expressing on video and dealing with thoughts that people have expressed in writing is that in in writing you know writers have a chance to kind of hide behind their words in in, in a way and and you know the words are kind of the final product um the the, the you know at the, the end of a process of thinking um whereas even if you're very carefully prepared in terms of what you want to say on on video there's all you know, all sorts of other things going on. You know, you might stumble over your words. Um, you kind of, you might not actually, your body language might not be as you really want it want it to be. So they're all other additional factors, I think, that make the kind of the quotation of bodies and voices um, a slightly trickier proposition. Absolutely. One of the, um, the writer Fran Lebowitz has a very famous case of writer's block. She hasn't written anything in like 40 or 50 years or whatever, but she's made the documentary about her by Martin Scorsese is called Public Speaking. And that's how she makes her money. And she said that people often say to her, well, why don't you just write down your lectures and that can become your next book? And she said, transcribe any conversation with someone and then read it. And I'll tell you, that's not writing. <laughs> that's not what writing is. Um, and I think the same the same principle applies here. You know, I hope no one is holding anything I say on this podcast or in a or in a live Q and A or anything as as gospel. So I think I think it's an important point for sure. I want to learn more about your creative process because we've touched on a couple of things here. One is that you've mentioned that it's been recently that you've been making a lot more videos. And I think that's definitely what I've come to associate with you is sometimes I'll wake up on a Saturday morning and Ian has a new creative, exciting video. Um and you've already mentioned Katie's great phrase that I steal, working in the flow, which we can add remixing Cary Grant is different than remixing Catherine Grant to the set of phrases that I've already stolen in multiple contexts. Um, you often make videos, as we've already mentioned, in response to the work of others, in response to a, a thread um, on Twitter, you're very active on Twitter, and to just film criticism more generally. You made the video, Mr. 
Grant's Dream House, which was in response to the call for video essays that this podcast in partnership with the Carrie Comes Home Festival and Charlotte Crofts put out. Could you just discuss in general terms how, how ideas form in your head and, and how, how you look for inspiration for videos and how you decide when to kind of wet your feet in things that are going online? Because it seems to me that that's, again, that's what I associate with with not all of you, your work, obviously, but but, but much of what you do um, in your work. Yeah, and I think as, as you, you're saying that, I think it is a more recent attitude that I've adopted. It, it coincides with the pandemic to a certain extent. Um, uh, but also, I think just working through the sort of my indie vinyl um, project, which I know we'll, we'll go on to talk about, um, as that's developed, I've definitely become much more open to to working in, in the flow and to responding to things that are just happening in, in, in the moment. I think another element that's kind of encouraged that in me is becoming more active on, on social media, in, in particular Twitter, um, although I've been a bit quiet on Twitter recently, but but it kind of comes comes and goes. But but certainly I'm still looking at what's happening um, on 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 Twitter. So I I do try and be responsive um, to to things that are happening out there, and I, that's why I feel like I'm, I'm working in 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 such a kind of a lucky time, really, because there's such a sort of lively discussion about audiovisual criticism uh, going on, uh, especially over the last couple of years in public forum and i think a lot of it is down to to um, your work will um that it gives me so much to respond to so um it's and i i think i probably i need it i need i need i need that outside stimulus to be motivated to to do things so um i think the uh you know the, the 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 call that you made for the Cary Grant videos for the the Cary Grant festival themed around um the idea of journeys um that's just a really good case in point um I'm not a Cary Grant scholar by any means um I would never have thought to have made anything about Cary Grant until you put that call out and then as soon as you did I thought okay what you know what what can I do I don't know if you want a kind of more detailed kind of idea of the process I could talk a little bit about the the Mr Grant's dream house and, and how that developed Oh yes I want to get I I I want a full picture cuz I'm 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 just interested in this portrait of the video essayist like just to give you an example like when you get an idea does it just sit in your head for a little bit and you kind of start tinkering around up there or is it late at night and and you get the idea and you 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 pull up premiere and you start doing downloads like or is it or does it vary project to project just how how, how do you start a project and start working through what you're going to do well I, I think again it's changed in, in earlier years um I say earlier years as if I've been doing this for 30 years, but, um, you know, in, it's sort of when I, when I, when I started seven or eight years ago, um, I think I, I made the prospect of, of making video essays seem like a big deal in my head. And so, as I said earlier, that's why I, I think I decided I, I had it in my mind. I wasn't going to make many videos. So when it did come to making one, there was a long gestation period in terms of thinking about what it, what it might be um, and how it might, how it might develop. Um, but over the last, um, say, 15 months or so I have definitely changed my attitude and now it is much the case more the case that if I have an idea I try and kind of make time to implement it um, and not worry um, too much about 
whether it will count as research um, um, or, or anything like that, which I think is something I've heard Catherine Grant talk about as well, is, is really just, just to make, make, make things in the moment and then maybe reflect on them in a more formalised context uh, afterwards. Um, but I don't do that with everything. So it is a case of getting an idea and, and then just trying to kind of develop it. Um, and... And it's something that I increasingly do try and kind of say to the students um, that they're making video essays is really not to hold on to the idea on paper for, for too long. So um, I think partly because at Glasgow, most of what our students do is kind of writing about film and TV. And, you know, we, we do sort of teach them the importance of planning um, and, and things like that. A, a number of students are quite reluctant to sort of stop planning things and just kind of get into the editing software and just play around with, with, with their, their footage. So I'm nearly always encouraging students to get onto that stage quicker than they might want to and so that's a kind of an attitude I've tried to kind of follow myself um particularly recently as well so you know so for Mr Grant's dream house for example uh your your call was for the video essays to be around the theme of on of journeys in relation to Cary Grant and so my immediate thought um as it always is to think quite small um and so I was thinking well what's the smallest kind of journey I can envisage and so I thought well how about just the journey of kind of going through a door from one room to another so that was the idea and and you know then is that then it's just a case of do you know getting the footage together look looking at the kind of the films for moments where Cary Grant goes through a door um, and then just getting as get harvesting the clips getting them into the editing software um, and, and playing around with them so um, it, it, so so once I get the idea I do try and make things quite sort of intense not necessarily quickly, but but um, certainly sort of um, try and put the hours in whilst the idea is 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 fresh in my mind. Um, of course, there's always sort of the real life distractions which sometimes stop you from just kind of shutting yourself away for for four days solid um, to to finish these things. Um, but but that's definitely the the kind of the attitude I try and have now is try and have work on an idea quite intensively um, and to get into the sort of editing phase as as quickly as I can. That makes a lot of sense. I love I love how you thought of the smallest possible journey. And I, I think there there is something to that of not thinking about everything as this large, big project idea instead of just taking one little thought and kind of expanding it. And those are a, a lot of the video essays that I most love and enjoy, um, whether it's Ioannis uh, Binotto or um, Ariel Vassar is someone whose work I kind of see as similar to yours in a way. Um, I don't know uh, if you agree with that, but just in, in the sense that I, I feel like the, uh, the two of you will often just drop these really fun, creative works that are dissimilar from one another in a really refreshing way and I'm always surprised and it's oh great and this this mix of playfulness with the form but also a, a high level of of analysis and, and and clear you know knowledge of of the subject matter I don't know if you've noticed a kinship that's what I want to bring up yeah <laughs> yeah no I hadn't I mean I, I really admire his work and um it makes me want to watch it again now to to, to, to see those links that, you, that you're making I mean in terms of the Mr. Grant's uh 
Dreamhouse video, I wouldn't make a claim for it having kind of high levels of analysis. Um, that that particular video actually, uh, hopefully, it is it is is fun. Um, but one thing I would say about the process is that it was only by getting the playing around with the footage in 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 the editing software that I realised what wasn't working. So so even though my kind of initial idea was just just to have um, Carrie Grant going from through one door through to one room and then through to another as I as I was actually making it I thought it needs something else um this is actually going to be a bit tedious just to see him just going through doors the whole time so the element that I added then was to have Cary Grant sort of witness himself doing something ideally in each room I never actually managed to get him doing something in every single room in the house but in in a lot of the rooms so so I added kind of moments of comic performance quite famous moments of comic performance from some of his films that Cary Grant would witness as he was walking um from door to door as well so but I wouldn't if I if I just planned everything on paper, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have kind of discovered so quickly that it needed that extra element. Um, so you know, it's, it's good that you kind of sort of see what I'm doing as, as fun, because because I mean that that's that's part of the process is to make it fun, um, and uh, so. You know, I saw that that video in particular. It's really just like a jigsaw puzzle. Once I had my clips, it, it's like trying to work out how, um, you know, what what the best match between the different clips of, of him walking from door to door are. And then when I needed little moments of drama to kind of just kind of um, change the pace of it a little bit um, uh, uh, as well. So, so. You know, you, you can't you can't do a jigsaw bus puzzle without having all the bits kind of laid out in, in front of you. So that, that's how I see the kind of the editing software, really. You've touched on something very interesting, which is that you said that you would not say that Mr. Grant's Dreamhouse has rigorous analysis or a lot of analysis. And, you know, obviously that I'm not I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think what's interesting now is then how can we use your video to then analyze Cary Grant and how we think about Cary Grant and then how can we that then it, it's sort of similar to that process that you said of, you know, make first and then reflect later, whether in a in a written article or in a podcast format like this. So let's reflect for a second. One of the questions that so Ian uh, participated in a live event that we held at the Carrie Comes Home Festival, um, reflecting on these video essays that we made. That was a previous episode of this podcast, and it also exists as a live video, so folks can can go listen to that as well or watch that. But one of the questions that I had in the lead up to that that I don't think I actually asked in the live event, but that I'm very fascinated in, is I believe that Carrie Grant for some reason, and this is what we're going to talk about, or I'll ask you what you think, is a particularly suitable object for the study of videographic criticism. As a performer, as a person, there's something about him that I've seen many video essays, yours included, or I shouldn't say many, but a few, uh, more than I've seen about other performers that seem to emphasize his movement, the way he moves, that are just concerned not as much with analysis, but just as much as putting him in the video essay itself and kind of seeing what happens. What are you, what are your thoughts on that, particularly as you look back on the video? Is there something about Cary Grant that makes him particularly suitable for the videographic critic? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you're definitely onto something. Um, and just, just what you said there, Will, uh, Cary Grant has got such a distinctive performance style you know I think definitely does reward close attention and if one of the things that audiovisual film criticism 
is good at doing is kind of showing details which might otherwise kind of um you know um not not be seen outside of that kind of concentrated audio visual container then i think Cary grant's performance style does reward that close attention so both in terms of his physical performance but also he's got a very distinctive voice um obviously which is used in lots of different ways um over his career as well so i think that that's that's one reason why you can see that Cary grant is just a kind of a, a perfect subject really for audiovisual scrutiny um in in a way i think also the fact that Cary grant is a hollywood star and this this is not so much a point about Cary grant it's more a point about, I guess, a continuity-based cinema like like Hollywood cinema is that, you know, for, for my purposes, for what I was trying to do there, I was really working with the ingrained continuity in that style of, of filmmaking. And it really, it, it allowed me to make a kind of a, 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 this, this, this fiction that Cary Grant was moving from film to film, room to room, but also film to film. My video had a flow partly because that flow was already there in the kind of the original editing scheme of the films that I was harvesting that kind of really that commitment to continuity in, in that sort of Hollywood style I think means that the you know th- there's a kind of some that's something that can lend its its force to the criticism I suppose that's Christian Keefley's point about um, video essays kind of um, borrowing the aesthetic force of their the, the objects of study it's a very kind of um, appealing aesthetic force that you're kind of drawing from 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 that continuity based kind of cinema which you can either go along with which is kind of what I did in my video or if you want to resist it you know if, if you want to kind of be in conflict with that um, it, it gives you something kind of that's because it's so kind of perfectly continuous in its own way it makes it something that's actually you, you can very effectively kind of deconstruct and 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 oppose in quite a kind of a strong and critical way I think so and and, and actually in terms of kind of me saying that my my video I didn't think was particularly analytical one of my hopes of it was was that people other people would take it on and maybe do something else that was that was a bit more overtly analytical with the video so I, I actually I kind of put a call out on on um, Facebook and on Twitter just saying if anyone wants to download my um, my video and and do whatever they want with it please please do so and um, a couple of people have definitely done that so it's so Max Tolin and and Rob Stone so Rob Stone did this wonderful kind of kaleidoscopic remix um, of of, of um, Mr Grant's dream house and max tolin um did this really wonderful video letter um called um better homes through editing um and that's something he picked up on is that is the kind of how kind of the this continuity basis of of hollywood cinema um really kind of lends itself to being kind of reworked through audiovisual criticism so that's that's the general point is because Cary Grant was a star within that kind of cinema I think that that kind of makes him amenable um, for, for for the audiovisual form um, another thing would be um, just the availability of the Cary Grant archive so I mean he, he made over 80 films I think nearly all of which are pretty easily available so I I, I, I mean many, a lot of his early ones are just there on YouTube so um, you know I didn't throw money at this project but it was just from the subscriptions that I have um, and just YouTube it was easy enough to, to kind of find um, find the find the material to, to work with and you know that is I think 
that question. It's something that's taken up quite interestingly in a couple of the um, articles in the Cine Files. Um, you know, the the it's okay for us to be playing with the archive um, and, and and having fun fun with that. But the, you know, obviously the archive privileges certain films over other other films, and you know, the, the Cary Grant films are not kind of neglected films, so they're easily available. Um, and 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 you know, and that and you need to be able to get hold of the footage to to do anything with it, obviously. But having said all of that in terms of him being kind of a kind of having a very distinctive performing persona being part of a kind of uh, a, a filmmaking system which is easily available i think there's still some kind of enigma around Cary grant and uh, i think um you know one of the, the you know there's been quite a lot of um writing about the disparity between his public persona and his private persona um so there's still a sense there's a mystery to be solved um, with, with Cary Grant. And I suppose, again, that's one of the other kind of things that you want to do with, with audiovisual criticism is to solve mysteries, you know, and, and to kind of explore enigmas. So I think that I think there are reasons why Cary Grant should be a really kind of um, rewarding um, star for audiovisual study. But I, th- I think your, you know, your, your call really kind of brought out a lot of really great video essays um on on Cary Grant and it kind of filled a gap as far as I could see see I, I mean I did have a look around to see what was already out there and there's a good sort of sight and sound um uh, so, yeah I think it's sight and sound or BFI um video about Cary Grant's sort of slapstick performance style but I couldn't actually find that many other video essays um on on Cary Grant but 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 now there's sort of six or seven thanks to your your call call for them well well thank you and thank you for that analysis. And I think your point of the archive is well taken. I think that was definitely something that I have, you know, become more aware of. I think I very much had the view like, oh, on the internet now, everything's available. Everything's accessible. And, you know, the more I've learned, the the, the more I realized that's definitely not true. So it's definitely an important point. And I think one thing that Charlotte said during our our live event, Charlotte Crofts, was that when she's started this festival as part of an as part of an effort to show why Cary Grant should be a serious object of study. And I think the video essay is such a perfect means to explore Cary Grant because I to me that doesn't feel weird to take him as a as seriously as an object of study. Um, but I think at, at the end of the day he is in many of his films, you know he has some serious performances of course, but he is playful, he is fun, he's hilarious, he's handsome, he's all of these things. And so the way that the video essay balances the serious with those playful fun things, it seems to me to be the perfect venue to explore someone like Cary Grant. And I think a video like yours in the way that it, it it's kind of super cutty in that, you know, it's appropriating a lot of films and looking at his, it, we could call it a super cut to the way Cary Grant moves or walks or something, you know, uh, it, it shows to me what he brought to his films, right? It doesn't matter who the director is or who the studio is or, or the genre or the year per se. There are some continuities in what he brought to his work that situates, you know, that, you know, lends, you know, will, will help someone who's conducting a serious analysis of Grant as a performer, but at the same time will make you laugh and smile and, you know, fall in love with him all over again. Yeah, and I, I mean, I do, I do see that that video as a kind of resource, I suppose, um, um, for kind of further research. And I've already actually produced another um, version of that um, where I did a kind of audio remix um, um, of it, which was 
trying to just offer another critical perspective, I suppose, on that material. And yeah, as I say, I was delighted to see Max Tolin and Rob Stone kind of take it on as well. Um, and so, yeah, if anyone just wants to kind of pick it up and, and go with it, I'd really be interested to see what, what, what people do with that kind of source material. My final question for you before we move on to indie vinyl, and that is, we've mentioned a couple of times the latest issue of The Cinephiles. You wrote one of my favorite pieces that's included as part of that issue, um, in which you analyzed all of the creator statements published alongside works in in transition. Um, I learned a lot from your piece. I appreciated the phrase, uh, the acceptance of ambiguity that you used to describe the, the ethos of the creative process in a way. Um, I'm very interested in thinking about how we write about videographic criticism. That's something I've said a couple of times. And I don't necessarily mean in a, in a self-reflective way in, in, you know, chronicling the creative process or talking about why, you know, you wanted to make a video essay. I, you know, I, I'm interested in that, but that's not what I'm referring to here. Um, the ambiguity that you identify, and this kind of relates to what we were just talking about with Mr. Grant's Dreamhouse, um, it, it makes it clear that we should be writing more about videographic criticism, interpreting the works of videographic uh, critics and scholars and filmmakers um, in the same way that we write about any other work of art. And I'm and I'm not saying that I'm original and advocating for this. I, a lot of people have, have mentioned this. Did writing this essay and going through the creator statements, did it change how you viewed and thought about the work of others and the role that writing should play more generally in the videographic discourse? I think because the piece I wrote was a survey piece and I was looking for general patterns in terms of the ways that creators wrote about the work that was published in In Transition. Because I was looking for those general patterns, it wasn't so much a case I kind of had insights into particular individual work um, through through the process of writing that article. Um, but having said that, I do think the kind of creator statements in, in, um, in Transition and also the peer reviews are really useful resources just for for the reason that that you say actually in terms of kind of having a written discourse around the work Um, and okay the creator statements might tend to be obviously self-reflexive about the process and 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 and, and what they're doing but the the peer reviews are kind of obviously looking from an external perspective and and reviewing the work with in transitions editorial guidelines in in mind so that they're not I guess they're not like kind of reviews that you would get in in the newspaper um of of the work but they're they're still evaluative reviews um so i I think they're really kind of useful resources and it goes to the point that i suppose you know one of the justifications of audiovisual criticism is that the audiovisual form can yield insights that other forms can't or can't can't in the same way so you know writing is a critical form as well so so it follows that that writing can do things that audiovisual criticism can't do so easily as well so i don't think there should be a kind of a big schism um or kind of um conflict between the idea of writing and the idea of kind of doing audiovisual criticism and writing you know that's about individual pieces of works can be really obviously really useful in terms of illuminating aspects of the work kind of um 
just trying to kind of encourage other people to appreciate the value of, of the work um, as well. Um, one, one thing that when I teach video essay courses, I always get students to do is to watch as many video essays as they can. And and this year, I actually formalized that to get every week the students had to kind of write a kind of, you know, a, a 200 words on a particular video essay that they'd chosen. So if we were kind of concentrating on sound, you know, for, for that week, they would they would have to search out a video essay they thought was really interesting in terms of sound and then just write 200 words on why they thought it was interesting. Um, and I thought that was hopefully a useful um, exercise for for the students. Um, but it also made me think it would be kind of nice for those kind of reviews to be more out there in, in, in public as well. So it's obviously you on, on your podcast, you, you always have this kind of, as we'll, have, we'll come to later, you know, you invite the, the, the people you're talking to to talk about a video essay that they that they really kind of admire. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think, again, you're contributing to that process of kind of getting a, a, a reviewing culture around video essays going. I suppose when video essays get selected and packaged for festivals and things like that, that's another opportunity for the work to be reviewed in the same way as a kind of a, a sort of a, a work of art would be. And yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a really kind of positive development. To transition here to Indie Vinyl, a project that features the written word and the sounds and images. Your Indie Vinyl project, I know I, like many others, had it on my sight and sound list of the best video essays or video essay projects of of 2020. I want to preface this segment by saying that your project is so rich and varied that we will we will not be able to cover everything in in this interview. But Please give us an introduction to the project. And you have a, you have a beautiful, long reflection that you published in Nexus and also a website, um, both of which I'll link to at thevideoessay.com. So some folks may already be familiar with this. But for someone who is not, um, tell us about the introduction to the project, how, how long you worked on it, how it came into being, and a question that I have that I would like you just incorporate. How did you select your corpus? 148 films? I can't even imagine. Uh, so <laughs> I see you smiling. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that well that took a long time, but I'll, I'll come on, on to that. Um, but well, so just, you know, for people who don't know, the, the, the core of the project is it's a project around um, record playing in American independent cinema from 1987 till um, 2018 um, and as you say it's a combination of writing and a, a number of video essays and also social media posts as well um, so the project started I think I would say it started um, in 2015 um, it stemmed really from a pre-existing interested interest I have in uh, how pop music works in films. Um, so my PhD um, back in the 20th century was was on um, pop pop music and film, um, and also in American independent cinema. So uh, you know a lot of the films I've kind of written about um, in relation to pop music have been American independent films, but I've also um, taught um, courses on American independent cinema you know quite regularly um, over the last 20 years. Um, so. 
it was a way of um, kind of bringing those interests together. Um, and I was interested in how kind of independent films uh, made use of music in particular ways to reinforce their independent credentials. Um, and, and and one of the ways I'd noticed, and it's not just me that hadn't had noticed this, um, but, but, but one way that a number of American indie films seemed to kind of use music was to feature record playing scenes um, as a kind of a sign of distinction for the films, just at a time when vinyl was actually becoming kind of an obsolete media, commercially speaking. So, um, so the, the kind of the, the more kind of um, the, the CD as it was um, came to dominate the sort of the, the kind of commercial music market the more you saw scenes of characters playing records in American indie films as part of the kind of niche appeal of these films so I, I observed that phenomenon and yeah I was just interested in in kind of looking at it and again it, I suppose it was that kind of notion of thinking small again so you know what 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 could be smaller than a project that's based around looking at close-ups of kind of needles being placed on on records it's uh, yeah so started in 2015 um and it had a written and a audiovisual component uh, right from the start so um i wrote an um a chapter in in a, a palgrave handbook on on sound sound design um which um and, and i wrote an art, a chapter about um the kind of the sound of vinyl in the royal tenenbaums pulp fiction and ghost world uh and in the course of researching that and writing that 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 chapter i made my first supercut um which was my first attempt to just find as many examples as i could of this sort of kind of record playing scenes in american indie cinema so that that was kind of published in um i think 2016 um and the article came out in 2016 as well so so writing and the audio visual components were hand in hand from from the very start um and so that that that's how how it that was kind of the origins um of it um and so i was interested in that kind of that the research question i suppose at that time was to think about how does the kind of representation of vinyl in these films help to construct a sense of identity in these american independent movies um so that's a kind of sort of film specific kind of question um but then I thought about how I wanted to extend the project and I thought, well, there might really be some kind of um, um, possibilities here in terms of inventing a project, which also as a key research question was interested in thinking about the possibilities of the audiovisual form as a form of, of criticism and I suppose academic criticism in, in particular, because I guess what, what I was doing was I was looking at how films um, were depicting an analog medium, so so taking vinyl as an analog medium, and um, by doing audiovisual criticism, there I was sort of using a digital form of criticism to um, to to investigate an analog representation. Um, so I thought there might be an interesting crossover there between thinking of kind of audiovisual criticism as a digital form and written criticism as an analog form. And so, so I was also doing a, um, trying to think about the, the, the virtues of digital kind of forms of criticism versus written forms of or analog forms of criticism um, as well. So I thought there was maybe kind of a correspondence between um, um, the sort of the idea of looking at record 
records in American independent cinema and thinking about audiovisual criticism as a digital form of investigation, um, moving on from kind of analog forms of investigation. And I suppose the other crossover was thinking about the record collector as a figure, you know, the kind of the record collector figure that you get in, in these movies seemed potentially to resonate with the kind of the figure of the academic the kind of the, the, the sort of the kind of the obsessive kind of qualities that you associate with the record collector um the kind of completism of the record collector also kind of virtues that are associated with certain forms of academic research you know that kind of desire to be completist um and authoritative as well so you know i thought there were might be kind of some nice kind of um i don't know associations between um between the kind of the the, the representation of records in in the films and thinking about all, what audiovisual criticism could do in terms of the corpus of films and how i kind of built up that that corpus uh, it really was just a matter of kind of lots of scanning films you know um and i suppose that is one of the interesting things about audiovisual criticism particularly when you're doing research for kind of supercuts is that if that completist urge does take over then there's actually not enough time to watch all all of these films or all of the possible films that could have record playing moments in their entirety so you end up doing something which might seem like a cheat which is kind of just scanning quickly as you can through a lot of movies which is made possible through sort of digital technologies um i did do that um and the way i kind of sort of try to find leads on possible films was partly through my own kind of experience of kind of knowing the kind of directors that 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 I knew had kind of featured record playing scenes in 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 their films um and then just making sure I'd watched all of their filmographies scanned through them to see if I'd missed anything so it started off from that really but then then I would kind of use the internet movie database to just do um so you know the, the the keyword search the advanced search function in, in in that movie database is actually really useful in terms of sort of trying to find find these scenes uh, then i would also look through sort of box office lists of like independent kind of um f- films in terms of um, box office across the years and and make sure i'd, I'd I'd read the plot synopses, you know, and, and if it, if I felt it was likely there could be a record playing scene, I would try and kind of get hold of the, the film somehow and scan scan through it. And then just lots of other random scanning through any any kind of thing that I was subscribed to, like Mubi or, or um, like BFI Player or, or, or whatever, Amazon Prime and Netflix. I would just kind of randomly scan um, as, as well. So I will have looked, scanned through thousands of films. I, I didn't keep count of how many I'd scanned through to get to that 148. But it, it's quite, it's, it's not the sort of process that I would have adopted, you know, if I was just doing written criticism. And a lot of my, you know, my my written work is really based on kind of just looking in detail at a very small number of, of things. So it was quite interesting to develop a different process for this. This idea of the completist, I think is fantastic. I also am a collector of things, um, not vinyl. So I, I definitely recognize that impulse and it can be a blessing and a curse um, in a lot of ways. But to, to take a step back a bit, and I'll, I'll circle back to as many of the things that you've just said in, in subsequent, subsequent questions. 
But talking about the, the relating a little bit to the completist, you published parts of this project as you finished them. And it's something that we've seen others do in projects, whether it's once upon a screen, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, um, publishing the videos and then on Vimeo as the creators made them and then them all coming together in the cinephiles. Or I think of Jason Mattel's The Chemistry of Character in, in Breaking Bad. And the article you wrote for Nexus um, on this project was trying to think about indie vinyl as a, as an, as a monograph. Why did you decide to to release it in parts before it all came together in, in the website and in the final article? And how, how did you know when one element of the project was ready for publication? I think partly because I abandoned the idea of actually reproducing a monograph um, in audiovisual form, which... You know, the traditional thing about a monograph isn't that you kind of release it bit by bit. Obviously, it's that you, you mull over it for a long time, you perfect it, then years later it's there, you know, in, in, in book book form, in some sort of perfect form. Um, so if you looked at my plans for the project near the start, as I, I mean, I do talk about this in the Nexus article. Um, I, I, ha- I, call, I call it a sort of monographic mindset is a term that I use in, in, in the article. I definitely kind of had a monographic mindset from, from the start in a sense. I was planning the video essay very much as chapters in, 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 in a book and I don't know. I don't really know what happened um, to, to, to kind of, to, to, put me off that that plan apart from maybe just some of the the, the things I said about kind of um actually just becoming more influenced by things that were going on around me and kind of um getting out on social media and and, and interacting there um and it, it just kind of encouraged me to to work use the phrase again work in the flow more um and so if you yeah if you look at the chapter plan i had for for originally it's nothing like what i ended up producing but hopefully the project's more interesting um as as a result um and 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 the kind of the shapes and sizes of the different elements are actually not not uniform and i think that's hopefully part of its charm um in a way so um yeah i had to kind of unlearn some of my kind of academic habits in order to end up where i am now and i think that's definitely something that um um jason patel and kristen keefley and and Catherine grant in in the videographic essay website which is obviously kind of um stems from the middlebury college workshops you know uh, i think christian keefley talks about kind of one of the intentions of the workshops is to get academics to un- unlearn their old habits um so i think i think my individual final project was was maybe an exercise in unlearning lots of things i love also how the website as as you say you know there's a way that one could move through it kind of like a monograph but as you say who knows how people are discovering things maybe they're just finding one of the videos on vimeo and then that leads them to the website and then they play around or they find the nexus article or they saw one of your social media posts and again it it beautifully encaptures as you say the the flow you mentioned in the 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 super cut the there's something in the supercut that mirrors that completist mentality. Um, one thing that's interesting about the supercut is, and this is something that Alison Dufresne writes about in 
in the cinephiles and just you know I think the title of her essay is a scholarly approach to a fanish practice and and a lot of things to discuss on the supercut on you know is a supercut a, a video essay why is some supercuts video essays others aren't when does it become one a lot of things we could unpack there but one thing that's interesting about the supercut is just you know you kind of need to have a lot of examples otherwise you have depending on the subject a video that's four seconds or 12 seconds or what have you. Whereas in writing, perhaps if you're writing a book chapter, you might only need three or four or five examples. And that's really all you need. What drew you to the form of the supercut for this project? The first impetus was um, what I said earlier about wanting to just try out a new form. So at the stage I made the first supercut in 2016, you know, I still hadn't made that many video essays. I'd, I'd you know, I'd made the Hokey Carmichael one, the voiceover one, um, and that that was it actually. So, so this was my attempt at doing my supercut, and and you know, at that time I probably thought, okay, I'll only probably make one supercut again. So this this is this is going to be it. Um, but it didn't turn out that way at all. So, um, yeah, just experimenting with a form I hadn't used before. That was one, one impetus. But in terms of the kind of the, 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 the broader aims of the project, um, I thought using a supercut was kind of it worked with the the research I was doing into how record playing scenes construct help to construct a sense of identity for these movies i thought kind of producing a supercut which just compiled you know a lot of examples together would be doing that kind of scholarly work of, of kind of providing evidence of the phenomenon you know that this this thing actually does exist and it is a repetitive trope that you see across a number of movies so um i think i say in in the nexus article that the the written equivalent would be the kind of the the introduction to your kind of monograph where you're just sort of just establishing what the corpus is you know and, and the dimensions of it so in one way it was serving that scholarly purpose by by doing doing that you know if it, i wouldn't say that's it, it's part of a kind of research enterprise but but the actual supercut itself isn't an isn't really a kind of self-contained act of scholarship um in in that sense so the the thing that i think then i'm not sure you asked me to, to talk about why supercuts are scholarly but i suppose that's where i'm going with this um that was going to be my next question <laughs> But uh, before before you get to that, let me just preface it quickly, just and how I was thinking of it. Unless, so th- thank you for that. And I think you know it, this is interesting in the sense that the supercut in and of itself is not scholarly, or maybe it is. We're gonna we're gonna get to that. But I think it's important just to note, and this is what I was implying earlier, if I didn't say it directly, and and you make it clear that it is just from a labor and time standpoint harder in many ways than how you might introduce it in the monograph and a written monograph as you say where you might get away with limiting you know you have 148 films so you might get away there probably with seven eight films i yeah, i don't know i haven't written a book but you know i think you know what i'm getting at so just from a labor standpoint it's it's a lot of work but that itself doesn't necessarily make it scholarly and you and you mentioned that on its own it might not be scholarship it's part of a i think you just said scholarly enterprise um and in his response to the once upon a screen videos that was also published in the cinephiles um kristen keithley writes of those videos even if one were to claim that none of the accompanying videos qualifies individually as scholarship i would argue that the collection of them surely begins to i'm gonna pass the baton over to you where you are going in a second but i just want to preface it by saying that it seems this trend is becoming more common in 
in videographic criticism where there's a grouping of videos, whether made by one person or a group of people, and then together they become a scholarly enterprise, to use your phrase again, that I'm probably going to steal going forward. Um, what do you make of this trend and how do you see that applying uh, to this work? Yeah, well, I think the Once Upon a Screen collection is a fantastic example of that. I mean, it was a, it's a sort of a great idea, a great premise for um, kind of a, a call for, for video essays. And then to have Christian Keefley's kind of article sort of um, reflecting on, on on the collection and tying, tying them together as, as he does. I think it's just a perfect example of, of what, you, what you're saying, that they're actually kind of taken together videos that on their own, you know, you might or might not see a scholarly certainly do become a very powerful kind of um, act of scholarship um, as as a group. Um, and I think, you know, one thing maybe we'll talk about a bit later, one thing that I'm definitely want to do a lot more in the future is to do much more collaborative work. And so that's, you know, that's a form of collaboration in a way. It's kind of teaming up um, um, to, to, so that the kind of the, the, the whole has a greater force than the kind of the, the, the parts. In terms of my own work, definitely with the supercuts, the idea of producing more than one supercut was to make a comparison between them possible, um, which could then... Uh, be seen as sort of an act of scholarship in in itself Um, and one of the purposes of the Nexus article was to reinforce the notion of the collection of supercuts as a a scholarly enterprise by reflecting on them in writing so I didn't in the Nexus article I didn't want to try and just kind of try and explain away the supercuts um, as if everything in them was planned to kind of have some kind of particular analytical purpose um because I, I don't that's not that's not how the supercuts work but what i did want to do in the writing was to just give an example of how you could compare a moment from one supercut to another and that might potentially give you a different kind of sort of critical insight into the body of films um you know in one supercut than you would get in the other one and so through that act of comparison you do begin to see the kind of potential of the supercut form to produce new knowledge you know which is in it, 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 that that will be in transitions kind of um definition of 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 what what counts as scholarly although i know you had a really interesting discussion in the last your last um kind of podcast with with tracy and allison um about you know in transitions definition of the scholarly is deliberately very kind of expansive and open-ended so other other kind of people will have different ideas but but that was certainly the idea there there that that through the comparison of the supercuts um you you might see how that they how they might produce knowledge differently and that that's kind of that's that's an interesting thing to observe from a scholarly point of view Thank you for that. Yes. And I we're recording this just a few days after I edited and released that episode to the world. So the, my conversation with Tracy and Allison is definitely rattling around my head here right now as we as we talk to you um, in, in a very important way. And it, it's interesting to hear you describe kind of the, the 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 scholarly spark, I guess we could call it, that comes from watching these supercuts together. And it kind of reminds me of the way that we talk about one of the 
most well-known forms of videographic criticism, which would be kind of the side-by-side juxtaposition of two scenes. So it's interesting to then take that to the next level and think, okay, what happens when we watch two pieces of videographic criticism side-by-side? Yeah, and, and I mean, one thing actually I was thinking of, I really should produce another supercut, which actually puts all the four supercuts in the same frame to do that kind of side-by-side comparison. But I think may, maybe I'm, maybe I've done enough with my supercuts. So. I, I would watch it. I'll, I, here's you have a, one viewer. That sounds like a great idea. The, the other, actually, the other video I was I was thinking was the way you talked about the that you had an outline for the original monograph or whatever. I had in my mind the 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 mind map that John Gibbs begins say, "Have you seen the karaoke with?" and he uses that. So maybe you can you can make a video essay on what indie vinyl was supposed to look like. But I assume you're probably five years in the working on the project. You don't want that. But anyway, that was. That was my day. I would watch that too. Um, All right. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll just do that one for you, Will. <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of reappropriating the the work of others, because you reappropriated the conversation between me and John about his video essay for yours. See, it's all about the transitions here. Um, uh you also featured audio from this podcast in one of the videos um, in Indie Vinyl. And early, I think, I believe it was episode six or seven, my conversation with Jennifer Proctor, which feels like it took place forever ago. And it's a video that you call Indie Vinyl Interrupted that, that features uh, Jennifer's answers to some of my questions in the podcast. Of this video, you write, quote, the revelation of the corpus as a compromised one is only one intention of the video. It also literally centers the critical work that has been done to rethink the way we evaluate films and construct canons in the Me Too movement. Could you provide us with just an introduction uh, in the Me Too context? Excuse me. Um, Would you mind providing us an introduction to this video, how it how it came into being, and why you decided to include it in in the project. So I, I went through the process of making four different supercuts for the project, uh, and I always knew that. Uh, and, and, and you know the supercut is the form I suppose that is most associated with a kind of cinephilic response um, to, to, to to films um, and and expressing that in an audio visual format so um, and I know Alison Dufresne talks about that um, in, in her article um, as well so there is a kind of an association of the supercut with a very kind of uncritical um, approach to to the object of study. My the last supercut I made um, was really deliberately trying to be as ornate as possible. Um, uh, it's it's the one which has got a sort of multi-screen aesthetic, and it just becomes it just has more kind of bells on and whistles added to it as as it as it goes on. So I was delib- deliberately trying to make something by the end of the sort of supercut process that that seemed almost ridiculously um, decorative uh, in in a way, and that's not a, that's not a word you associate with scholarship. Um, but the reason I wanted to kind of progress in that way and to end up with a supercut like that was I always knew that I wanted to undercut it somehow to actually kind of just take a stop uh, or to take a pause and say, okay. You know, I seem to have got really sort of just sort of really uh, immersed in the form to the extent that, that maybe I'm losing any such kind of sense of critical perspective, and to do that deliberately, and then in order to step back. Um, so that would that I always had that in my mind. Um, 
but I didn't know what form that would take. So, so really, it was you know with the moment of me, me too. Now, as it did for many people, um, it really did make me sort of reevaluate what I was doing in in quite a specific way. Um, so. There was a lot of talk, uh, has been a lot of talk and continues to be, um, about how do you deal with kind of critically revered films um, once um, they've been comp- contaminated in some way by the revelations about the sort of production process or about the people um, who, who were behind making those 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 films. Um, and that that discussion seemed you know really pertinent in relation to contemporary American independent cinema, which formed my my corpus, you know, obviously given the kind of the association of Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein with the um, kind of American indie scene, um, but also more generally that the notion of American independent cinema as an edgy risk taking kind of space, um, which which kind of took on a different hue, I think you know, uh, uh, with the revelations um, um, through through me too, so. So that to, to, that made me feel that the way I wanted to reevaluate what I'd been doing with the supercuts and to undercut undercut them was um, to reevaluate the, the or to think about reevaluating the corpus in the light of me too. So the video itself it, it takes that kind of last supercut, the really ornate kind of version of the supercut, and it deliberately sort of tries to disrupt the pleasure that you might get from it by every every time um, it gets to a clip from a film that's associated with um, an abuser, um, then. Um, the video stops, um, and and what comes up at that point is is kind of a, a quote from from someone who is is doing the critical work of trying to re reevaluate the canon um, in the light of Me Too. And what also comes up at those points is the audio of Jennifer Proctor talking on on your p- podcast, and she's she's talking about um, a, a supercut that she's she she made, um, nothing but soap and water, um, which is um, uh, it, it compiles clips of women in baths um and it's a brilliant brilliant video um and and it's one that does that kind of work of trying to um confront the misogyny in 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 these kind of representations um that's doing that kind of the critical work that that you know i think we all need to be doing you know in in terms of reevaluating um the canon in in the light of me too so that's the background for why i wanted to make it in that form and it was really serendipitous i can't say that word but um that 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 you the interview with jennifer came out at the time it did just as i was thinking about um the this this video because what i think um her audio added was a kind of positive story of a kind of a, a filmmaker working in the independent cinema who was actually kind of thinking about confronting misogyny through her work um so i i like the idea of having that positive voice running through um the video at the same time as the video was stopping at, at, um to expose the kind of abuse that was behind the production of some of these 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 films and at the same time you were getting the sort of the positive critical work that was being done by many people in terms of like thinking about well how what's what 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 do we do next in terms of how we um approach a canon that has become contaminated in 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 the way it has well thank you for that and it's a great video powerful video honored that the podcast could play a small role in jennifer's 
commentary. It was a great interview and her work is incredibly inspiring and, and great. And when I was learning video graphic criticism for the first time, it was in the fall of 2017. And one of my classmates, she was doing a video essay on American Beauty. And I think the day that we screened the first drafts of our essays, the night before that was when the Kevin Spacey news broke for the first time. And so we come to class the next day. Of course, she has a completed draft of this video essay. Um, And I remember the discussion that day was not that her argument about American beauty per se had to change because of it, but more thinking about how does, but then how do we, how do we add to that? How do we incorporate these new revelations without it? Because I think one of the powerful things about videographic criticism is that because it gets released into the flow online, into the discourses that it, it has to acknowledge you know, it doesn't have to, but oftentimes it would be weird if you didn't acknowledge it or incorporate it in in some way. And I think that is that's a that's a great thing. It's it's forcing people to do that. And it's not I think it's something that I've come to appreciate more and more the more I've reflected on it and 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 seen videos in that. Yeah, you kind of have to be up on the times. You can't just ignore things anymore, you know? And I think one of the things that I think Alison maybe said on 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 the on on your podcast, she talked about the, I'm going to be misquoting Alison here, but something about kind of um, the potential of the supercut to con- to connect with um, to be to be worldly in some way to connect connect with the world and and that and maybe the you know the attempt to do that is is kind of a you know is 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 one of the the potential of that form and so I suppose that's exactly what I was trying to do with with indie vinyl interrupted was to kind of try and um, come out of the sort of the cinephilic um, kind of celebration of, of these films, which might seem to be suggested by the way I kind of did the, the final supercut and to, to really come out of that and, and re-engage the corpus with, you know, things that were actually happening in, in, in the world. To, to segue again, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning that social media posts are also a, a, a part of your, your work and uh, of Indie Vinyl and also just your general creative process, your other videographic criticism. In the video uh, Indie Vinyl on the clock, you begin with a screenshot of your, your, your Twitter or a screen recording of your Twitter. And that video was published in 2019. And I noticed that in that video, you only had a few hundred Twitter followers. Um, and now you have well over 1,400 Twitter followers. And social media, as I said, played a role in this project. Could you talk about the role that social media played in Indie Vinyl specifically, but also how it aids your scholarship more generally? How do you use it? And and this, we, we've already touched on that a little bit in this conversation, but I think it's just worth revisiting again here in, in the context of the project. Yeah. Okay. Well, f- first of all, I can't believe that you noticed that detail about my, my Twitter followers. You, you have been watching closely. So thanks very much for that. I mean, I think Indie Vinyl on the Clock, I, I mean, I've just produced these things over the last few years and I get mixed up of when I actually produced uh, what when. But uh, I think Indie Vinyl on the Clock, as, you know, as, as you've noticed, was made I guess it was the first video I made that really deviated from the plan actually um so it was really the kind of an example of a video that I made that was more working in the flow and and definitely that flow um I was receiving was from my kind of um uh, immersion in 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 social media um or or bringing the project into the sort of social media 
world. Um, so it definitely, the decision to use social media more as part of the project definitely did influence the kind of things I ended up making. Um, so actually both in Indie Vinyl on the Clock, but also Indie Vinyl Interrupted as well. So the other element to Indie Vinyl Interrupted, the kind of the information I get about the kind of the, the about the abusers is from a website called um, Rotten Apples, um, which, which kind of is like a database um, where you can kind of put a film in and it'll kind of tell you if, if anyone involved in the making of the film was has been accused of, of abuse. So, you know, by, by, by just kind of becoming immersed in that sort of online world, that definitely started to kind of influence the kind of videos I was making for the project. So Indie Vinyl on the Clock was really the first one to be influenced um, by kind of me becoming more immersed in in in, in that world but it's more generally um in terms of how social media has shaped my research that um in the nexus article i talk about the social media posts that i've made as kind of research fragments i don't really make great claims for them as fully developed acts of scholarship um but i certainly do like the format of you know of twitter in 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 a way the kind of constraining format of of twitter in terms of trying to produce sort of something interesting you know some some interesting thought about about a, a moment from one of my films um in in that format i think it's an interesting exercise um and then it has the obvious kind of um sociable aspects to it you know it's kind of it's it it can lead to engagement with people that wouldn't otherwise be engaged with this 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 kind of work it can lead to interesting conversations um so it's got that that aspect um as 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 well and i hope that it kind of fit quite well with the sort of the the record playing conceit um on the website I, I i include some examples of my social me- media posts and i call them um that that section i call s- sleeve notes so th- that's the kind of spirit i see them in really is kind of th- like little little fragments that, that accompany the kind of the, the main bo- body body of work and try and work interestingly within the sort of social media formats so um i actually started off on instagram um trying to do these sort of kind of um little or sort of postcard kind of style things um about each each record playing moment from each film so it'd be like a card which would have a kind of a still image of the record playing moment then it would kind of say who the kind of the the artist was who you were hearing at that time a little bit about the narrative situation what the name of the song was what the genre of the film was um that that kind of thing so it started off on instagram but by i I just I didn't really get on with Instagram in terms of kind of um, understanding how it worked. So I, I went over to Twitter and I found the actually I suppose maybe it's kind of reflects my ambition to kind of combine writing and um, audio the audio visual in the project. I found the kind of the ability to kind of write on Twitter as well as kind of produced images or kind of clips. Um, much more in keeping with what I wanted to do with the project as a whole. Um, so yeah, so I, I think there's a real kind of potential for social media to be used um, for research. Um, but obviously, that's something you know. You're, I think you're doing actually in a much more organised way with your um, Rio Bravo um, kind of project than, than 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 I've done. Well, certainly, I have a long way to go on Rio Bravo Diary to get it anywhere near as <laughs> great a project as any uh, vinyl. But I'll take any any slight comparison I can uh, I can get. And always good to hear of the benefits of social media. <laughs> You know, there are certainly a lot of a lot of negatives to it. But I mean, but I'm, I'm in, in the fortunate position, really, that 
you know, I'm not beholden to social media and, and actually I've been pretty quiet on, on Twitter um, recently and, and I don't really do any other social media properly apart from, from Twitter. So, uh, you know, it's I uh, obviously... Uh, some some people really kind of rely on social media, um, you know, in order to kind of publicise their work, and 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 they need it for for, for various reasons. Um, I'm I'm in the fortunate position of you know being in a full time academic kind of job and and being around I'm I'm able to play around um with different formats and I I do kind of appreciate that and I hopefully don't take it for granted no that 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 does make a lot of sense especially as social media these days is for so many people is having to sell their personal brand so it's uh definitely definitely nice to see some content that's not that now and again but speaking of the internet and how we use it I think that's a good way part time to transition to the final part of our conversation. And again, this is just meant to highlight a work that you find particularly compelling. We're we're never able to dive fully into these works uh, in the way that we should. But this is also where I kind of turn the mic over to you. And that is asking you to introduce the uh, video essay that you've selected for us to discuss. Yeah. So the video I I selected is um, My Mulholland by um, Jesse McGough. um, And it's part of the Once Upon a Screen collection that that we've been talking about. Um, So as I said, the the prem- I think we said before the premise of the of this collection is that um, each of the videos um, looks at a kind of a formative moment um, in um, the the creator of the video's filmmaking experience, um, some kind of disturbing um, moment, and so uh, Jesse McGough chooses. Um, the moment when she watched Mulholland Drive for the first time, as as I think, as a thirteen year old, and and couldn't couldn't get through it because she um, she, she kind of comes to a moment um, that that she finds too scary and has to stop. She, she just tells a great story about um, what led up to her watching Mulholland Drive and um, her kind of position as 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 a teenager, kind of consuming um, kind of media. In, in an online world in I think it's two, 2007 I think is 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 kind of the time she she watched it so she talks about what it was like to be a 13 year old on the internet at that at that time and a sort of a budding cinephile as well and the the opportunities that the internet allowed to kind of discover um new movies but also the kind of the 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 constraints of the internet and and the kind of the dangers of the internet as well but it's just one of the the reasons I, i i chose it is simply just because i think it's a great film um and it just tells its story in a really compelling way it it draws you in um and and like the timing i think the timing is just great um in in various moments so i kind of i was laughing at various points um and the, the, there's a moment where um jesse reenacts um watching a sort of a screamer video um one of these sort of prank videos that has this suddenly really disturbing um be in what what's what you think is going to be an, an innocuous video clip um so so she reenacts her teenage self doing that and and like i really jumped at that at that at that moment as, as well so it kind of does the the, the thing that again that Chris, christian um Keefley has talked about is that um, one of the great advantages of the audio visual form is that you are you are kind of making a film you know and you're you're using all the kind of expressive devices of, of filmmaking to do that i think it really does it really successfully um I think it, 
then as well as telling a personal story it's also a video which does kind of say something about the history of the internet and 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 it's really specific about what was going on in the internet um in 2007 and really recreates recreates that in a really effective way and makes you appreciate that you know of the internet the online world is a constantly evolving phenomenon um rather than just thinking of it as something kind of static which which i think is certainly something that maybe i i kind of um i i sometimes do is not not really appreciate how things have changed you know on, on the internet um and then but then in the last part of the video it, it kind of expands it out out of jesse's personal experience of internet culture into a really kind of thought-provoking discussion about our responsibilities in terms of how the internet has now evolved with the kind of the sort of like the image culture that is um, kind of proliferated through through the internet and, and what our responsibilities are in dealing with that and and by our responsibilities i think jesse is kind of talking partly about people who make video essays like 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 her so in the end it becomes a really interesting video essay about making video essays which is not how i thought it was gonna be when it when it starts out i will say a couple of things one is that so jesse and i are around the same age i believe if i'm looking at the 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 timeline correctly and the the jump scare video that she uses which ends with an image from the exorcist i believe like i remember watching that around the same age and it was very much as i believe she describes in the video like your friend would come up like you know the internet, I remember sitting when people had computer cabinets, you know, they used to have those like going to a friend's computer cabinet and sitting in front of it and being like, hey, watch this video and then the jump scare. So on a personal level, I had a lot of things feeling. I, w- I was not watching David Lynch when I was 13. So that's that's impressive uh, that she was uh, even attempting that to begin with. But uh, for what you say about how it is a it is a film, it's it's I, I absolutely felt that the same way. This phrase desktop documentary is an interesting one, which is exactly what it is. I think there is a sense out there that the th- this this uh, the documentary part of the desktop documentary phrase I think sometimes gets lost in the shuffle, um, in that recording one's desktop I don't think makes it a desktop documentary, right? Like incorporating desktop recording is an element that we might associate with the form of desktop documentary, and it is a it's a formal choice that the video essayist makes, but that doesn't make it a desktop documentary. I'm saying that phrase over and over again, but I I, I think it's relevant here. And that, as you say, I felt like it was a mini film and there were parts where I thought it was going to end, but then it kept going and it kept getting deeper and and more complex. Like you could imagine certain parts where it could have ended and you'd think, okay, well, that was an interesting piece of film analysis, but then we go a layer deeper and it gets broader and wider. And I think it's a really great example of why choosing the desktop documentary form, it has to fit what the video is trying to accomplish, right? Like on one level, it has to, I think, somehow incorporate the internet, right? And on the other, it it needs to tell you a story in that way and, and to move through the device. At least, you know, I'm not saying it has to be, but I think the successful examples, that's something that I would find um, in the genre. Yeah, I think that that's 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 right. And I think the control of that sort of desktop documentary format in my Mulholland is, is really truly impressive. And I mean again that's something I've found teaching video essays. Um more and more 
the students are wanting to incorporate that sort of desktop aesthetic in, 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 into their into their videos. Um, and it's actually really quite difficult to kind of to tell a compelling story using that that format. I think it's probably a lot more difficult than people think um, it, it's going it's going to be. And so the way that Jesse kind of stages the story um, through its different phases using the desktop format, I think is is kind of it's just this is a really impressive kind of again filmmaking feat. And there's something really kind of I don't know, there's something really clean and clear about the way that she's using that that desktop form, which I think helps to actually to lift the sort of the personal story that she's telling um, into something that has a kind of a sort of a wider significance because it's it's it, you don't immediately see some sort of cluttered desktop and then that's just randomly being recorded. Everything there seems to be placed quite particularly for a specific reason in order to kind of investigate a phenomenon whether it's to do with the kind of how the internet worked in 2007 or as it progresses thinking kind of about more contemporary issues whatever it's trying to do it seems to kind of um move its materials in a very precise way in order to investigate a particular phenomenon Absolutely. And I think one thing I appreciated and maybe perhaps something I, I wouldn't have noticed unless I, you know, I rewatched it today in preparation for this conversation. So I was perhaps overly uh, focused on looking at form and how it was constructed. But I appreciated how there were times where Jesse actually takes us out of the desktop, um, in particular when the video essay is kind of um, perhaps doing something a little more uh, traditional is not the right word. Um, but, you know, when, when we're just doing you know, film analysis of Mulholland Drive, we aren't in the desktop. It's just the film clips and it's annotated and it's kind of the more usual video essay format. But then when we go to the desktop is when it's getting perhaps a little bit more personal or maybe personal is not the right word. Maybe it's a little more focused on the internet in that, that personal narrative, which I thought was a very good way of making clear what was what and, and walking us through the story, which I, I really appreciate it. And it goes to show that the desktop documentary doesn't always need to like be so rigid and that we're on the desktop all the time. And we're creating this illusion that I'm actually there, you know, it, it can, it can be a mix of different forms. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right about how the video uses Mulholland Drive. Um, in the sense, you know, to start with Mulholland Drive and the references to Mulholland Drive are incorporated in that desktop style, that reconstruction of, of Jesse's experience. But then, as you say, you get into a passage which is more more like a kind of sort of film analysis, kind of explanatory kind of style of analysis. And then that's used as a bridge to then kind of... To, to use Mulholland Drive in the latter part of the video in a much sort of meta kind of textual way. Um, and, and, and so Mulholland Drive is being used in at least three different ways through the video. And each way it's being used, there's a different form associated with, with its use at different different points. So it's, it's, it's really has got that really kind of precise demarcations between sections I think while still having a really kind of lovely flow so Mulholland Drive kind of creates the common link between all the different sections. The other thing I, I, I appreciated and there, there's so many layers 
to this video, but just the way also it had me thinking about canons and lists and, you know, what's Im Im important or in, in, in heavy quotes and thinking about how much of movie going is informed, especially at the beginning of one's, you know, when, when one has decided, okay, I'm going to be, I love film. I'm going to like commit myself to this. Where do I go? Um, especially for someone who grew up on the internet with access to, again, not everything, but so many things, um, it can it can be really overwhelming to know where to where to start and which can lead you to watching David Lynch when you're 13 because you really don't know how to negotiate those things, especially as Jesse says, that she was often alone on the internet navigating this uh, herself. And I think in that sense, it's, it, it really has one questioning the canon, but also is a really great account of what it's like to be a cinephile now and, and the challenges that come with it. Yeah, and uh, I think that's right. And it kind of does present the internet in, in 2007, that kind of Wild West sort of feeling around the internet at, at, at that point, you know, full of possibilities, but also kind of uh, an unknown unknown kind of space um, uh, as well. Um, and I suppose maybe what, what Jesse is sort of representing there in terms of cinephilia in 2007 is what you were talking about the kind of feeling a little bit at a loss knowing where to look for video essays kind of now so um that, that there's maybe again i don't know i don't know if that's sort of an equivalence that's being kind of made by jesse in my more holland but it's something that's just coming up in our discussion now but again that's why i think that the video is really interesting to think of as kind of a reflection on where we are in terms of um, um, kind of making video essays as much as it is of her experience of, of kind of trying to deal with the internet um, 13 years ago. Yeah. And, and one of the things I was thinking about as I as I watched it, because I didn't discover my love of film until I was in college. And at that point, I could just take courses and people would curate screenings for me and I would find things to watch. So it was it was pretty easy. But in a sense, also, I'm thinking that video essays can also point us towards those underseen films, those films that we should discover that they video essays can reach maybe maybe not 13 year olds, but I'm sure there are plenty of 13 year olds who watch video essays, but really anyone of any age that can then help us be spectators and be watchers. And something I think about, you know, I'm someone who's made a ton of Hitchcock video essays and I'll be the first to admit that we probably don't need more video essays about Hitchcock. I'm probably going to make more, but I, you know, I have complicated feelings about it, but you know, like it's, it's, it's that kind of thing of thinking about our, as you say, our own role as video essayists and what images we continue to, to reappropriate, to pump out there, to put to the top of the pile and to keep going, going, going. I think it does a great job in, in forcing us to, to, not forcing us, but asking us to, to contemplate those questions. Yeah. And I, I, I I think I hadn't I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I think then that does make it a great compliment to some of the articles that were in the Cine Files um, um, special issue as well. The, you know, which which are like like the one by Susan Harewood, which are and Lauren Berliner, which are kind of really questioning kind of what it is we're doing when we're playing playing with the archive. So it's a great audio visual companion piece in, in the way you're describing it there t 
to, to, to those articles as well. And I'm, I'm not sure when our conversation will be released, but I've recently recorded a an, an conversation for On Your Screen, which is the new uh, companion show to the Video Essay podcast with uh, Kaylin Meadows, who's a student at Ithaca College and who made a great video essay on the, the rise of film TikTok, in, in which we talk about film TikTok for those who may not be familiar like myself. And there's a trend on film TikTok of people recording videos of themselves discovering great films for the first time. And, you know, sometimes uh, I've seen people mock uh, young teenagers, 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds who may be like, oh, you have to go check out this film. It's so sick, blah, blah, blah. And then it's, you know, Shawshank Redemption or, you know, something like their, you know, Citizen Kane or, or something like that, you know. And I always think to myself, you know, instead of mocking these people, we should be excited that they are interested in in film and then trying to point them in the right direction. And so I think now we're seeing not only are people, you know, there are always people who are 13 years old or whatever who are interested in film, but now they're more visible. We see their faces. They don't need to hide behind an IMDB message board like uh, like Jesse does in, in this video, which also shows something about how the internet has changed. But I think it also shows to be aware of audience and that there are young people who are interested in in film and moving images and culture that are definitely consuming our content right now because it's it's so much more common now for a 13-year-old to just have an iPad and be on YouTube all day that perhaps we should be more aware of that and and you know thinking through how we are addressing a wider range of audiences. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's you know one of the kind of the great appeals of of um, making video essays is as we've already said you know you you can make them and then you can just put them online. You know my like many academics my my work goes on Vimeo um, and you know it. it it doesn't get thousands of thousands of, of, of views. So there's an extent to which I know I'm, I'm putting my work out there for a fairly kind of closed circuit um, in a way. But even within that context, I'm always like really glad to, to hear when um, kind of, uh, for instance, when Sydney Wild Harris um, really kind of generously talked about um, the video I made, um, Slap That Bass, zoomed um in 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 your podcast and she was talking about the way that she's sort of shown it to friends you know that weren't necessarily interested in you know fred astaire movies from the from the 30s and they'd, they'd really got something out of it um it's great that kind of even my kind of videos which are made in a very kind of you know academic context have a limited viewership even those do kind of break out to kind of different audiences as well um and i suppose when i started the indie vinyl project i thought or maybe i thought one idea i had it was or maybe this will be kind of a project that that could have that crossover appeal because just of the nature of the subject um and it might have that sort of kind of vinyl vinyl fans being interested in it as well um it's not really worked out that well in terms of kind of number of kind of views uh, in, in, um, in that way so i've got no idea you know, if students are, uh, ask me for advice on how to kind of make a viral video, I don't have a clue at, at, at all. But I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just very grateful if, if for anyone that watches my videos. But it is really nice to kind of um, know that there might potentially be people watching them that wouldn't, you know, wouldn't normally kind of be be touched by by what I what I do in my written work, for example. 
No, absolutely. And and you never know. Uh, you never know. Maybe, um, you know, maybe I, I, I don't know. I could see some music publication eventually sometimes stumbling upon this and writing an article or doing an interview with you or you writing an op-ed. I think I think I could uh, I could see that down the road in the future. Who knows what what it will bring? And I think, yeah, and I think I think that just goes back to the power of the form is that, you know, it's kind of similar to Cary Grant. It can be serious form of study. But at the end of the day, you have to reckon with the fact that you're putting these out into the public. And if you want people to stumble upon them and enjoy them and what have you, then you have to make sure that you have that audience in mind. So, and I think, and I think that that's, it's, that's its benefit. That's its, that's its strength. Final question for you here, wrapping up our conversation and going back to where we began, which is your interest in videographic criticism as a teacher. I believe Jesse was a student of yours and was at the University of, of, of Glasgow. And I'm just, Jesse, I would Zay is absolutely a, a leading video essayist and someone whose work I admire and a lot of people admire. So I guess from a teaching standpoint, um, what was it like for you to, to, to watch this video and, and to see the, the, the great work that she's made? Well, it's absolutely great um, to see what, what Jesse is doing. Um, I take no credit for it at all. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think the, um, she actually um, was a student on the on the first iteration of, of the video of video essay course. So the first time I taught a video essay course at Glasgow, and she she did the great um, video on Bronson, which was um, um, taken up um, by IndieWire, and you know and got quite a few different like articles written about it and it you know it, it kind of it, it um it was a really successful video um out of the course but i didn't have um much to do with its development i think i think you know i i kind of i was the convener of the course that gave her her first opportunity to make a video essay so i'll kind of i guess i'll take that credit but um but really she 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 came with a like an idea that was really fully fully formed um and she's just gone on from strength to strength so but that is definitely one of the kind of advantages of this format is the potential for students to make something for a course to put it online and then to see see what happens um in a way that just students don't think to do with with written written work and so you know more recent example and the last time i did the video essay course the, the one where you came to talk to the students um a student did a really great um, um video essay on um on the gaze in barry jenkins movies she put it online and then matt zoller sites obviously watched it and and kind of posted something very complimentary um, on, on Twitter about it. So it's really nice that students have the opportunity to have their work kind of seen instantly in in, in, in that way. And that's, you know, that's definitely um, one of the kind of benefits of teaching these kind of courses. Absolutely. We are, I and you and this podcast are big proponents of student work. Um, some of the best best work out there is by students, no question. And I think a great way to end, and that has been a theme for this episode, is that make video essays, put them out into the world, and uh, some, some good things will happen. And they won't happen until they're published and sent out for the public consumption. Ian Garwood, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, for all you do, for your support, and uh, taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thank, thanks, Will. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thanks again for inviting me. Thank you.